following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This week, like I said, the uh, College of Preachers is taking over, and we're going to jump back into John. John is a book that we return to as a community when we're kind of between other series. Um, and it's interesting how the book of John, whenever we open it up, seems to have something to say to where our community is at that particular moment. Um, it's probably true of all the Gospels, but we found that very true of John here at Artisan. Um, so I'm going to start by reading the main text for today, and then I'm just going to do some very broad introductory stuff and hand it over to Colleen. So the book of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, it's uh, page 872 in the Red Bible, if you uh, want to follow along. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. And this is Jesus talking. The one who enters by the gate is a shepherd of the sheep, and the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger. They will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters by me will be saved, and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not uh, own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. So one of the really great things about coming back to the book of John is that you can kind of look at the specifics and really pick passages apart little by little. One of the really tough things is that you don't get a great sense for the overall kind of flowing storyline. Um, so let me just put some background on, on what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Jesus has been in the city of Jerusalem. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles. He's been doing, you know, the things Jesus does since back in chapter 7. Um, in chapter 7, he goes to Jerusalem for a feast. And the feast is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, depending on your translation. Um, and Jesus goes to that feast, and we're not told he leaves Jerusalem, and he's still in Jerusalem at this time when another feast is coming up, and this feast is called Dedication. And this is a feast we're probably a little more familiar with. We call this Hanukkah today, okay? So Jesus is about to celebrate Hanukkah. Now, this is about a three or four month stay in Jerusalem, teaching, doing miracles, uh, with varied reception, good and bad. Uh, we'll talk a little more about that next week. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Feast of Dedication, because the Feast of Dedication commemorates a time when uh, the people of Israel had been conquered by a foreign enemy. They had set up false gods in the temple, 
all these different like statues and forced different kinds of worship practices on the people. And then uh, some people led a revolution and they restored the temple to true worship. And so uh, they destroyed the statues and the idols. And then there's, of course, the story of dedicating the temple with one day's worth of oil that lasted for eight days. And so that's why the feast is eight days. That's why Hanukkah lasts eight days, right? So to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, what they would do is they would talk a lot about leaders because it was a leader who came along and restored true order to the temple, true worship to the temple and true worship to the people. So they would read all these different passages about leaders. Now, one of the main metaphors for leaders in the Old Testament was a shepherd, whether it's talking about kings or judges or anyone who's set over the people is a shepherd to the people. Uh, So one of the passages they would read comes out of Ezekiel 34. And it says, For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So, the atmosphere in Jerusalem around dedication was one of expectation. It was one of memory and expectation. They were in a time when they felt like they had been conquered by a foreign enemy again, the Romans. And they were waiting for that leader who was going to come and restore true worship. They're waiting for the true shepherd from Ezekiel 34. And so they're reading all these passages about shepherds. And it's a, very, it's a time of great spiritual expectation, but it's also a time of great political expectation. Maybe even more political than spiritual because it's about who rules. And it's into this really tense atmosphere that Jesus steps up and starts making some kind of vague general observations about shepherds. Well, shepherds are this way. They come in through the gate. If you're not a shepherd, you do this. And when the people don't really understand him, is he saying, he's the shepherd? Who's the shepherd? We know about shepherds. You know, this is the time for shepherds. But what are you really saying? He's going to use two images to flesh that out. Okay, the first one is the gate. And the other one that we're going to talk about next week is the voice of the shepherd. So what we're going to find and what Colleen is going to come up and uh, help us understand is that Jesus is actually a completely different kind of shepherd than they expected. So let's welcome Colleen up to right now. Thanks, Wade, for that introduction. Um, and like Wade said, we're going to be spending the next two weeks on John 10 and also John, 10, uh, John 11, fleshing out this um, picture of the shepherd and what Jesus means by being the gate and the voice If you've read even a tiny bit of what Jesus says in the New Testament, you'll realize that he's often very cryptic. And today our passage is about sheep, but it's also about each one of us. Psalm 95, 6-7 also uses this image of shepherds. It says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Jesus refers to himself as both the shepherd and the gate in this passage in John 10, and it's the second reference concerning the gate that I'd like to focus on today. The sermon has actually been five years in the making for me, and I was first struck by this, the lessons in this passage in my senior year of college. And so I'm really excited to be able to share those lessons with you today, and also a little nervous. Um, but before I get to that part of the story, I need to share a little bit of background. So in my junior year of college, I spent a semester studying abroad in Senegal, West Africa. And my time in Senegal was a perfect trial for what I was hoping would be a lifelong uh, time of working as a medical missionary in somewhere in French-speaking Africa. 
I enjoyed most of my time in Senegal, but the good experiences were overshadowed by a period of three days of terror when I spent my spring break working alongside medical missionaries in another town in Senegal. As I was preparing for bed the first night and my stay with the missionaries, my host let out a piercing scream from the other room. I froze, not knowing what I would expect on the other side of the wall. It turned out that we were being robbed, and her screams had scared the robber away. Two nights later, the robber had returned and was attempting to break in again and woke us from our sleep. And after this harrowing experience, I just became hyper-aware of my surroundings. I built walls of protection around myself, trying to control my environment and prevent anything bad from ever happening again. I was haunted by the experience in nightmares and flashbacks. The slightest surprise would send my heart racing and my adrenaline rushing. I didn't know why I couldn't seem to get over this experience, and my shame kept me from telling others about how I was feeling. After six months of constant fear and great distance from God, I finally sought help. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and started seeing a therapist. And this is where God broke through. One day, a couple of months into therapy, I remember feeling so trapped in fear, like I would never find my way out. I pictured myself back home in, in the home in Senegal, in the bedroom preparing for bed when the robber came. But this time, there were no windows and doors in the room, just me and the robber, and I had no way to escape. That's how trapped I felt. After therapy that day, I happened to read John 10 and 11, and something clicked. In John 10, Jesus talks about how he's the shepherd and the gate, and the gate allows the sheep to come in and go out of their pens and find pasture. Later in John 11, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, creating a different gate that allows Lazarus to experience life again. This was my first breakthrough moment in my struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder because I realized where I went wrong. In my attempt to protect myself, my pen had become my prison. I built higher walls, I got rid of the gate, and I didn't understand my need for pasture. I don't think I'm the only one who responds to the difficulties of life in this way. So let's see what John 10 and later John 11 have to say about our walls, why we need a gate to lead us to pasture. First, why do we build higher walls? When something unexpected happens in life, most of us do everything we can to regain control. Our first instinct is to protect ourselves. We shore up the most vulnerable places, we fortify the weakest parts, we build higher walls, maybe with spikes on the top so that even the most persistent can't get through. For some of us, we build up barricades of busyness. Others may lay down the bricks of cynicism. Still others build forts with a foundation of denial. The materials we use to build our walls come in all shapes and sizes. Addiction, violence, food, perfectionism, apathy, bitterness, secrecy, jealousy, and more. All of this constructing is an attempt to protect ourselves from the problems on the other side of the wall. So we have higher, thicker walls. Is there anything else we need to fully protect ourselves? There's still an entrance and windows to our fort. Let's get rid of the gate so no one else can get in, and let's board up the windows too. Now we're safe, right? But Jesus points out in the very beginning of this passage in verse 1 that the thief doesn't even use the gate to get in. He says, Anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, 
is a thief and a bandit. So did that process of fortification actually protect us? Maybe it will protect us from external threats for a time, but it doesn't protect us from ourselves. Without a gate, the bad stuff can't get in. But at the same time, the bad stuff that was already inside has no way of getting out. We have inadvertently imprisoned ourselves with fear, anger, shame, and self-hate living inside ourselves that will ultimately destroy us. Jesus argues that we need a gate. He says in verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. There are three things I want us to observe about this particular verse. First, that we didn't get rid of the pen. Second, that we'll be saved by the gate. And third, that the gate leads us to pasture. It's easy to jump to the conclusion that if our walls are contributing to our self-destruction, then we should just get rid of the walls. But Jesus says here that the sheep still come in and go out of their pens. Sometimes it really isn't a good idea to leave the pen. And boundaries are a good thing as long as they're not thick and tall. This is where listening to the shepherd's voice is important. When the good shepherd calls his sheep out of the pen, Jesus says it is the gate that will save us. We conducted this whole process of fortifying the walls around the insecure parts of our life because we wanted to be protected. And yet here, Jesus isn't offering us protection from others, but salvation from ourselves. With a gate, we have a way to bring to Jesus those things that were destroying us from the inside. The process of confession is one way in which we allow Jesus to be the gate. And Scott gave a really great sermon last week on confession, and if you weren't here, I really encourage you to listen to the podcast. Through confession, we allow God and others to know we are struggling, which allows God to lead us to a better place. That better place is the pasture. Jesus continues in verse 9, saying, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And later in verse 16, uh, I have came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And later in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. These verses help us understand that the pasture represents a place of community where all the sheep will be gathered together. We talked about community as well in our last sermon series. And I think Wade's going to speak about community again next week. So I'll keep this part short. The only thing I want to emphasize about community here is the power of protection we can find in community. Community means I've got your back and you've got mine. Each of us struggle with different threats in our lives, and I think it's community that provides us the protection that we often seek to create for ourselves in our forts of isolation. In addition to community, the pasture also represents a place of nourishment. As we share our struggles and triumphs with each other, we grow and learn from each other too. Community and nourishment are the attractive benefits of following the shepherd into pasture. But there's something more. Remember, there's still a very real chance that a threat is out there. We could still be hurt. I don't know about you, but the last place I want to be if there's a wolf lurking is out in the wide open pasture. That's way too vulnerable a place for me and my instincts of self-preservation. The pen sounds a lot safer right now than that pasture. I don't really need community and nourishment anyways. I think I'll head back to the pen. But wait, why is Jesus so confidently leading his sheep into pasture here? Verse 11 through 15 say this. I am the good shepherd. Jesus was referring to himself here. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because the hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. A couple of weeks ago, we meditated on John 10:11 during our liturgy of solitude. As I reflected on that verse, I was feeling kind of cynical. I asked God, what good is a shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep? Doesn't that just leave a very dead shepherd and a very alive wolf? Great, now my shepherd is dead, and now I'm going to be dead pretty soon too. And then I realized why we need the resurrection. Jesus says nobody can take his life away from him. He alone has the power to lay his life down and to take it up again. His resurrection after the crucifixion proves this point. This good shepherd will never ultimately be defeated. If we're willing to let Jesus lead us into pasture, our search for protection will instead lead us to the gift of eternal life. Jesus says in 10, 27 through 28, "My my My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now here's the most amazing part about the story of shepherds and sheep. Jesus isn't just philosophizing about sheep. He isn't just theorizing or spewing metaphors. He's actually setting us up for what he's about to do next in chapter 11. Actually prevent one of his sheep from perishing. In other words, he's about to raise somebody from the dead. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me explain. If you look at John 11, soon after Jesus shares this metaphor about sheep, he's told that one of his friends, Lazarus, is ill. But he waits a couple of days before he goes to see him, and by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead four days and has been entombed. Jesus is met by Lazarus' sister Martha on the road to their house, and later Lazarus' other sister Mary also speaks with Jesus. The story ends with Jesus rolling away the tombstone, calling out to Lazarus, and Lazarus walks out of the tomb wearing his grave clothes very much alive. The images of the walls, the gate, and the pasture are present in this story as well. As we consider Jesus' interactions with Martha and Mary in this passage, we will see the different ways that we respond to Jesus as the gate. So first, the walls. The most obvious walls in this story are the ones surrounding Lazarus in the tomb. However, Jesus' interaction with Martha shows that she has some walls up as well. Right after Jesus asks for the stone to be moved away, Martha resists, saying in 1139, Lord, already there's a stench because he has been dead four days. Martha wasn't ready for Jesus to see the destruction that was happening inside the tomb. And she wasn't sure if Jesus could handle the sights and smells of death. How many times do we respond to Jesus' attempt to be the gate in our own lives in the same way? Look at how Jesus responds. He says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus knew he could handle the situation. And he can handle the sights and smells of the rotting parts of our life, too. So Jesus built a gate. The stone is rolled away. But what prompted Jesus to build a gate in the first place? If we compare Martha and Mary's interactions with Jesus in this passage, I think we'll find the answer. Both Martha and Mary initially say the same thing to Jesus upon first seeing him. They say, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Essentially, they're both asking him why he took so long to get here and how he could have let such a horrible thing happen. Why didn't you protect us from Lazarus' death, Jesus? But this is where they diverge. Martha talks to Jesus first. Alone, she meets him on the road before he has even arrived. Martha goes on to tell Jesus how confident she is in Jesus' powers to make everything right again, saying, But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. We'll come back to the conversation that follows between Martha and Jesus in a minute. But for now, I want you to notice that this conversation does not initially lead Jesus to the tomb. Now let's look at what Mary says. Again, she starts with the same statement as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But instead of imploring Jesus further, she starts to weep. And she's surrounded by a crowd of others who are also weeping. Whereas Martha shores herself up with stoicism and confidence in Jesus, Mary lets Jesus see the depth of her sorrow and disappointment in him. In response, Jesus asks where they have entombed Lazarus, and he begins to weep too. In my mind, there's no more beautiful image than the one of Jesus weeping alongside of us in our sorrows. The scriptures say, Then Jesus again greatly disturbed came to the tomb. Earlier, we talked about confession as a means to which we allow Jesus to create a gate in order to access the entombed aspects of our lives. Here we see Mary allow Jesus to create a gate in another way, through honest and pure expression of her emotions of Jesus. She lets Jesus into the mess. Finally, let's return to the conversation with Martha as we consider the pasture. In response to Martha's confidence in Jesus' powers, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. In this conversation, Martha believes that Jesus has the power to be the Messiah or Savior. But she doesn't realize that she needs him to be her Messiah. Jesus reveals himself to Martha as the good shepherd from chapter 10. And this conversation explains why Lazarus will once again be led into pasture and community and watched over by the good shepherd, because Jesus holds the power over death. So it's Mary's willingness to be emotionally vulnerable with Jesus that creates the gate, and Martha's belief in Jesus' resurrection power that creates the possibility for pasture. In our own lives, we need both if we're going to experience the abundant life that Jesus promises in John 10.10, where he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. With these necessary components now in place, Jesus is able to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes out in his grave clothes, and Jesus says, Unbind him and let him go. The passage doesn't elaborate further, but I can only imagine the amount of shock and rejoicing that ensued. I hope that as I've been talking, your minds have been training with all of the ways these two passages, John 10 and 11, have application for your life, your relationship with Christ, and your relationship with others. I know that for me, the preparation of this sermon has been an exercise in preaching to myself over and over again. It wasn't until I started to apply these lessons five years ago that I began to heal from post-traumatic stress disorder. By sharing with friends that I was struggling, allowing them to sit with me through difficult nights, And letting God know that I was scared and felt like he had forgotten about me. 
All of the bad stuff I was holding inside finally had a place to escape. And there was now a way for God's love to reach me again. It wasn't an overnight fix, but I know that if I hadn't begun that process, I wouldn't be where I am today. Even now, I struggle with letting Jesus keep the gate open. But I know from experience that as counterintuitive as it seems, it's the only way that leads to healing. As we move into a time of communion, I want to conclude with a a question for you to consider and two ways for you to respond. The question is this. What are you protecting behind your walls that actually needs saving? Or maybe you know very well what you're protecting behind your walls and you'd like to keep it that way. Maybe you're like Martha saying, oh Lord, you can't handle what's behind my walls. Please don't open the tomb. If that's you, I want to encourage you to give God a chance. Maybe start with a smaller fortified room in your heart and see how it goes. Jesus can handle it. Jesus said in John 10:18, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus did exactly this when he died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. He extends the same resurrection power to each of us, saying in 10, 27 through 28, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. One way that we can participate in Jesus' death and resurrection is through the table of communion. As you tear a piece of bread from the loaf and dip it into either the wine or the juice provided, you're remembering Christ's body torn for you and his blood poured out for you. The table is open for all who want to be called into pasture by the Good Shepherd. Before you come to the table today, I encourage you to allow Jesus to be the gate through which you walk to this table. Here are two ways you might do this. First, for those of you who realize why you're listening to the sermon, that you need to confess to God what you're hiding behind your walls, I encourage you to at least begin the process of confession with him now. He can handle it. Second, for those of you who realize that you need to express the emotions that you're hiding behind your walls, I encourage you to at least begin the process of emotional expression with God now. He can handle it. Finally, if during this process today you feel that you need prayer, we'll have a member of the prayer team sitting up here, and you can always come up and seek prayer. They're also available throughout the week. You can write a prayer request down on an info card and put it in the um, box on the back of the wall, or you can email prayer at artisanchurch.com. And I encourage you also to speak with others in our community about these things so that we might be a flock that looks out for each other. As we leave church today, and go about our week coming in and going out from the pasture, I want to remind you of this one final thought. With Jesus as the gate, Jesus doesn't promise that our lives will be safe, but he does promise that our lives will be saved. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.